another edition of America's Godly Heritage. Now we're going to jump from California to the Midwest and the Northeast. And this is where we get to see some Jesuits. Now the Jesuits are different from the Franciscans and the Dominicans. One of the main things is simply they're French. The Dominicans and the Franciscans tended to be the Spanish and Dirante, who was from Flanders, but most of them were Spanish. The Jesuits are mostly French. And the Jesuits look at things differently. They are much more as a whole group, like what we learned with Degante and De Las Casas, where they wanted to go alongside the people that they were trying to be missionaries to. They didn't just come in and say, you've got to be Christians and shove it down their throats. They befriended them, came alongside them, learned from them, learned about their cultures and their ways of doing things, and brought Christianity into that. So these missionaries were rather successful. Starting in Maine and Canada, they worked their way across over through the Iroquois in New York and the Illinois and the Hurons, all the way across the Midwest. And they were much more successful in their ways of doing things than what the Spanish were trying to do. Another thing that they did that I found quite interesting is that they were required to keep diaries of what they did. At the end of each year, they would have to send their diaries to their superior, who would kind of review them, and if they needed help in a certain way, he would send help. If they needed supplies, he would send supplies. If things were going so well they needed more workers, he'd send more workers, that kind of a thing. But the other thing that they did was they published a lot of what was written in the diaries so that people back in Europe could see what was going on in the New World through the, the Jesuit missionaries. And they were published in books called Relations. The amazing thing is you can actually go on Amazon and order the Relations and read for yourself what these missionaries wrote. In fact, one famous missionary, Jacques Marquette, was inspired to become a missionary because of reading relations. In 1673, he had studied the Huron language. He had also, just because one language isn't enough, he learned six other dialects, and he helped to found two missions in what is now Michigan. Then he was sent to the shores of Lake Michigan, the southwestern shore, sort of near where Chicago is now. He worked among, surprise, surprise, the Illinois Native Americans. He worked in Illinois among the Illinois. He really enjoyed them, and he wrote of them, The Illinois are lost sheep that must be sought for amongst the thickets in the woods. And indeed he did. And he didn't just seek them there, he lived with them there. He traveled with them there. He learned from them about how to adapt to living in the deep woods and how to survive off the land. He really, truly immersed himself in all of this. As he was working with Illinois, who were very receptive to the gospel and who just adored him as a person, they started telling him about this mighty river that flowed away to the south, and it went so far south no one knew where it actually ended up. They wanted Marquette to travel down the river and to speak about the Christian God to the Illinois who lived down in that area, and then to keep going further into the villages of other Native American tribes that were down there. Of course, Marquette saw this is awesome. Of course I want to do this. This is wonderful and it's exciting. 
So he sent word to his superiors. The superior said, that sounds super cool. Let's do it. And they sent an explorer to go with him named Louis Joliet. They were to seek toward the South Sea, by that they mean the Gulf of Mexico, new nations that are unknown to us to teach them to know our great God. So when spring came, they began their journey. From where they were, they actually had to go along Lake Michigan and around the edge there into Green Bay to the actual area that we know as the city of Green Bay. And then they went along as many rivers and lakes as they could through Wisconsin till they found the Wisconsin River. And then they went down the Wisconsin River until it met the Mississippi River. That's the great river to the south that they had been talking about. And they followed the Mississippi River all the way down to where the Arkansas River meets the Mississippi. Now at that point, they were talking to some Native Americans and the Native Americans said, oh yes, this goes into the Great Sea. By what they were saying, Marquette was able to understand they meant the Gulf of Mexico. But the problem was, the natives also told them that the Spanish were there. The Spanish were in all the areas south of where they currently were, which would have been very dangerous for them. Because there's a very good likelihood that if the Spanish encountered them, the Spanish would at minimum hold them hostage or kidnap them or beat them up and send them packing, but more likely would kill them because they didn't want the competition. They didn't like the idea that the French were there trying to hone in on their territory. They decided that although they hadn't actually made it to the Gulf to see for themselves the actual mouth of the river, they knew where it was, they knew what to look for. So they started heading back north again. Throughout the journey, they were evangelizing to the Indian groups that they encountered. Also, Marquette kept a map of the journey and kept a diary of the voyage. He talked about the villages that they saw, the customs of the different tribes the topography of the land, the nature and variety of the plants and flowers and trees and animals and birds and fish. And you can read about that in, guess what? Relations. They published what he wrote in book number 59. So on coming back up, they got to what is now called the Illinois River. The natives said, oh yeah, if you go up this river, you're going to eventually end up at the giant lake what we know as Lake Michigan. Why in the world didn't you say this to start with? They could have had a much shorter and easier trip if they had just taken the Illinois River down to the Mississippi River. But then there would have been a lot less land that they had seen and been able to explore. So they were back again with the Illinois tribes, which is kind of to him like coming home. They wanted him to keep talking with them, but he had to finish his journey. He had to go back to his superiors and report in about all of the stuff that they had just explored. So he promised he would return and he continued to what is now Chicago and back up the coast to the edge of Green Bay where he reported in at the mission St. Francis Xavier. And unfortunately, he was so exhausted and so worn out from all of his constant travels, his constant hardships, his constant living off the land that he felt he was dying. He knew he wasn't going to live that much longer. So he did return to the Illinois tribes and he did work amongst them almost until he died. When he realized he really was going downhill quickly, 
they tried to get him back to one of the missions in Michigan, but he died along the way. And he died at the age of 39. That is so sad because he could have done so much more. In tribute to how much they loved him and respected him and honored him, the Illinois took his bones upriver in a procession of 30 canoes back to the mission at Mackinac and basically presented him back to his superiors and thanked them. Okay, we are now on to our last case study. This is Jean de Brebeuf. Brebeuf was a giant of a man, both in stature, he was just ginormous. He's like a linebacker, and he's a giant in character as well. He was an outstanding Jesuit missionary who served the Hurons. He wrote to newly arrived missionaries, You must love these Hurons, ransomed by the Son of God as brothers. His service to the Hurons began when a group of them came to Cap de la Victoire, where he was, and they were just trading. He asked if he could go with them. And at first, because he is so honking big, they're like, no, <laughs> there's no way you're too big. You're not going to fit in our canoes. But he kept pestering them and he kept pestering them because he really wanted to go with them. And eventually they gave in and they said, look, if you promise to sit in this canoe and don't move at all, you can go with us. So he promised and he did his best to keep that promise. Actually, the attitude of the Hurons towards him changed when they got to some cascades that they had to get out and portage all of their stuff and their canoes up past the cascades. And Brebeuf was just so big. He's like picking up all this real super heavy stuff and just carrying it on up. And they're like, whoa, he is so big and so strong. This is amazing. So they renamed him Echan, which means the man who carries the load. All of the Hurons from then on knew him as Echan, the great Echan. He did have a great impact amongst the Hurons. When he arrived at the village of the people that he was traveling with, he learned their language, he learned their customs, he learned their belief, and then he wrote a grammar book for the Hurons. He translated a catechism for them into their language, and he prepared a phrase book for the missionaries coming after him to make it easier for them to learn the basic things to communicate in the Huron language. Now, he did have some setbacks. For example, after one visit to some Huron villages, the people came down with smallpox and they blamed it on the missionaries. It probably was accidentally the missionaries' fault. They didn't mean to bring the smallpox with them, but they probably did. Another thing that happened was that he was accused of working with the mortal enemies of the Hurons, the Iroquois. The Iroquois were vicious. We're talking about the ones that would go up pretty annually and raid the Huron villages and kill a bunch of them and take a bunch as slaves and take their stuff and take it back to their own villages. So the Hurons were terrified of and hated and detested the Iroquois. Some people started accusing Brebeuf of plotting with the Iroquois to hurt the Hurons, to, to help the Iroquois attack the Hurons, which is about the worst thing that you could accuse him of. So things got so heated and so bad, he had to leave the area for a couple of years. But while he was gone, he continued to work for them. He continued to set up missions in other slightly less contentious areas, 
and to work amongst them. Eventually he was allowed back in again and he converted thousands to the faith. He inspired many people to volunteer to be missionaries in the New World. He became known as the Apostle to the Hurons. Unfortunately, he did actually make a great impact amongst the Iroquois as well. In one of their raids, the Iroquois captured a bunch of Hurons and Brebeuf went with them. He didn't want to leave his people to the mercies of the Iroquois without some kind of spiritual aid. So he went with them. And eventually, somebody betrayed him to the Iroquois and said, that's that Echon guy who's got that great spirit power working with him amongst the Hurons. So the Iroquois just flipped out because they didn't want to hear about this great spirit power that thinks it's more powerful than their war gods. They decided to make an example of him and to, to try to take his power. So they set about torturing him to death. The first thing they did was they poured boiling water on him in mockery of baptism. They knew all about being immersed in water for baptism, so they poured boiling water over him. Then they tied a collar of red-hot hatchets around his neck and let the hot hatchets lay on his skin. Then they tied a belt that was filled with pitch around him and set it on fire. Through all of this, Brebeuf did not scream, and they just could not understand it. They could not understand why they weren't getting to him. And at this point, Brebeuf did actually yell, but what he yelled was encouragement to the other captives. Just stand strong, stand strong in the faith. This enraged the Iroquois. They just couldn't believe it, and they were furious. So they cut off his tongue, and they stuck a hot poker down his neck. Believe it or not, he's still not dead. So then they began to cut off strips of flesh off his arms and his legs and to eat it in front of him. And that still didn't work. So eventually they just plain killed him. They drank his blood and ate his heart in an attempt to harness that, to take that spiritual power they had seen in him because they just could not believe his courage and his fortitude in the midst of all of that torture. He and many other martyrs for the faith did eventually have a big impact on the Iroquois because they did eventually become less warlike and many of them became Christians through this horrible, horrible martyrdom that they endured and the respect that the Iroquois began giving them for their fortitude in horrendous circumstances. And the list goes on. I haven't even had time to share stories about other missionaries to the New World, such as Isaac Jogues, Charles Lallemand, René Goupil, Joseph Le Caron, Paul Lejeune, Jacques Gravier, Anthony Daniel, Marcos de Niza, Eusebio Quino, Juan de Zumarraga, and Alonso de Benavides. These men are just a few of the thousands of Franciscan, Dominican, and Jesuit missionaries who laid down their lives whether just going to the new world and enduring all of that hardship and difficulties and stress and strain, or by going the next step and laying down their lives ultimately as a martyr to share the good news with the Native Americans. 
We should learn more about their life stories, of their faithfulness to the gospel of Christ despite incredible hardships and challenges, and sometimes despite the torture and martyrdom. They're really amazing lives, and they need to be read and recognized. So our final takeaway. With the horrific treatment of the indigenous peoples by the Spanish, it almost seemed like God's plan for America was over before it even began. Yet the missionaries sent by Spain and France to the New World genuinely loved God and were committed to being his light in the darkness. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So this is a good metaphor for what was going on there with the missionaries. The Spanish and French missionaries and martyrs were willing to be those grains of wheat that fell into the earth and died. They laid their lives down so that God could plant the seeds of the nation, which would become a blessing to the rest of the world. Thank you for listening to this edition of America's Godly Heritage. I hope you have a great day. Bye! If you would like to help support America's Godly Heritage, or to view the resources used to make this podcast, just go to patreon.com or vimeo.com and type America's Godly Heritage in the search box. You can also make financial donations at givesendgo.com. Again, just type America's Godly Heritage in the search box. We really appreciate your support. Thanks again. Bye.